Let's turn to Mark chapter 9, the transfiguration. Uh, Chapter 9 is the continuation, of course, of the events of chapter 8. Yeshua had said, if anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Rabbi Glenn, why don't you start us off? Verse 1. Yeshua went on to say, Amen, amen. (laughs) I tell you the truth. Some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God arrive in great power. Now this is a statement that skeptics and scoffers have seized upon in order to attempt to discredit the new covenant and dismiss the claims of Messiah Yeshua. After all, they assert, all those people died long ago, and the kingdom of God still hasn't arrived. Now, in saying this, they wrongly take it to mean that he was referring to his second coming. If Yeshua had meant that, (laughs) he would have been greatly mistaken. But our Messiah is not mistaken about anything. As we're about to see, three of the men, three of the men standing there at that moment would personally witness the power of the kingdom of God just days later. Let's go on. Six days later, <clears throat> Yeshua took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Yeshua's appearance was transformed, and his clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. Then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Yeshua. Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He said this because he really didn't know what else to say, for they were all terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone, and they saw only Yeshua with them. So you see, Moses eventually did make it into the land. Okay. All right. Now, I want to address something here. Was there anything significant about six days passing between Yeshua's statement and the event itself? There is an issue that skeptics and critical scholars bring up about the differing number of days between Luke's account and Mark's. Let me briefly address it and then get it out of the way. Here's the alleged problem, and here's how it's it's resolved. Luke says that the uh, transfiguration took place about eight days later, whereas Mark and Matthew wrote six days later. This isn't actually a contradiction, as the skeptics allege. One is very specific, and one more general and inclusive. Luke, let's remember, wasn't a journalist. (laughs) He wrote about eight days later. Uh, There are a couple of reasons he may have done that. One was that he simply included the day that Yeshua made the remark, and the day of the transfiguration in his counting, in which it would be about eight days. 
Perhaps Mark was simply saying six days was the number of the intervening days. It's really not a contradiction, just a different perspective or a different way of reckoning it. Um, It's also possible that Luke was stylizing the number, which was a very common practice in Jewish writing in antiquity. Since the number eight symbolizes a new beginning, uh, and what Peter, James, and John witnessed was a foretaste of something altogether new, Messiah coming in his glory. Now, let me add that those critics, the same critics who make a big deal about these differing numbers, they would object even if the numbers agreed. They, said, they would just say, oh, they all copied off each other. <laughs> if anything, this validates the fact that Luke wrote independently. Let's move on. So why did he lead them to a high mountain? <clears throat> and why these three? Yeshua led them to a place of solitude. Now, the the tradition is Mount Tabor, but Mount Tabor is not a very high mountain by Israeli standards, and it it isn't quite, doesn't have, afford as much solitude as, say, Mount Hermon. But the tradition is Tabor, whatever. That's not the issue. The issue is he took these three men and they went away alone. He wanted only these three closest disciples with him for this unveiling. He knew that Peter, James, and John would rise to prominence in the formation of his community. And as such, they, more than anyone, needed to be convinced and strengthened in advance, and all the more in light of the hostility that they would face And ultimately, two of these three would have to lay down their lives for their faith. Now, what's the significance of the transformation of Yeshua's appearance? What's the significance of all this? The, the, The brightness, the whiteness of his clothing. He was allowing them to get just a teeny tiny glimpse of his divinity, his holiness, and his future glory. Colors mean things. White symbolizes purity and holiness, and in this case, affirms his deity. So now the question is, why did Moses and Elijah appear and talk to Yeshua? Why is this so significant? And how did, the, how did, how did Peter, James, and John know that it was Elijah and Moses? It's not like they lived way back then. Oh, hey, good to see you again. <laughs> Was It must have been by what was said, not by their appearance. So Moses and Elijah appear, they're speaking with Yeshua, and this is a visible affirmation to the three disciples that he is the Messiah, as attested to in all of the Torah, represented by Moses, and in all of the prophets, represented by Elijah, considered you know, in some ways, the greatest of the prophets. In fact, Luke records that Moses and Elijah were actually discussing with Yeshua his impending death in Jerusalem and his departure from the earth. So after his resurrection, when Yeshua told his disciples, and this is Luke 24, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. It's really solidified for these three, these disciples who would become great apostles. And after his resurrection, they would be at liberty 
to share with the others what happened when they went away to that mountaintop. I want to just give you a, a short quote by a, a guy I really respect, a commentator, biblical commentator named David Guzik. He wrote, right in front of them, the disciples saw evidence of life beyond this life. When they saw Moses and Elijah, they knew that Moses had passed from the world 1,400 years before, and Elijah had passed some 900 years before. Yet there they were, alive in glory before them. It gave them confidence in Yeshua's claim to the resurrection. But in that moment, on that mountaintop, these three were awestruck as briefly, Briefly, a tiny ray of eternity broke in to time and space. Peter didn't quite know what to do or say. But by his own admission, Peter often engaged his mouth before his mind was in gear. Mark tells us, and this is verse 5, Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He said this because he didn't really know what else to say, for they were all terrified. So let me ask, was what Peter said wrong? And if so, why? Well, there you go. The answer is yes, and for a couple of reasons. As well-meaning as Peter was, what he said was wrong for a couple of reasons. First, because to build them three booths would be to put Yeshua on an equal par with Moses and Elijah. And if you've been following our Revelation study especially, you know that Messiah is Lord. He is incomparable. Ain kamocha. There is none like you. Secondly, to build booths in their honor would, was, would be to try to make permanent something that wasn't supposed to be at this time. Perhaps this was Peter's way of trying to prevent Yeshua, once again, trying to prevent Yeshua from having to die. Maybe by suggesting, hey, let's just establish everything right now. Let's just do it all right now. In any case, Peter's words were hasty, and at that moment they experienced an extremely rare thing. What was called in Hebrew a bot kol, daughter of a voice, which is an allusion to God himself speaking from heaven from the midst of a cloud. And that cloud should kind of remind us of Sinai, right? God descends in a cloud. And essentially told Peter to stop talking and listen. <laughs> but the Father's words further attested to the greatness of Yeshua. This is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. Peter had to be reminded yet again of the necessity of Messiah's death. And when they either woke up or snapped out of their terrified state, only Yeshua was with them. And once again, in his earthly appearance. But here's a question for you. Mark wasn't one of the three. How does he know about all this? Because after Yeshua's resurrection, Peter, James, and John were now at liberty to relate what happened and Mark would have heard it most likely from Peter. So the awkward description of Peter being terrified and speaking rashly probably was an admission by Peter himself. Very humble. So let me conclude my section with this. What Peter, James, and John saw on that high mountain was a momentous event, one which would change them 
and was a big part of what would eventually be their full understanding of the divine nature of Messiah Yeshua. At the very least, this is what we should take away from this glorious encounter. Thank you, Rabbi Glenn. Rabbi Jer, any thoughts or comments? You know, I, again, I just want to emphasize that unlike other, quote-unquote, books about God or religious texts, we have something very authentic here because we see the highs and the lows. We see Messiah Yeshua bathed in glory, revealing himself in this really special and amazing way. And we also have a candid assessment of Peter. And I agree with Rabbi Glenn, most likely by his own mouth afterwards, reflecting on this moment. And through the Holy Spirit, God saw fit for Mark to record not only, you know, the highlights, but the lowlights as well. And it just lends an air of authenticity to what we're reading. That This isn't just a made-up mythological story like a Greek myth. Couple thoughts. It is highly unusual in human history for someone to audibly hear the voice of God. When God speaks audibly to a person on earth, that is a very unique and special moment. It's very important. And this audible voice of God was taking place at a very special time. This is one of the most amazing things that's ever happened in history. Uh, the Messiah being transformed with glory and um, honor and Moses and Elijah who never died, the forerunner of Messiah's return there on this mountaintop experience. This is powerful. This is amazing. And the voice of God, you know, speaks, this is my dearly loved son. God the Father identifying Yeshua as his son, the son he loves. Listen to him. Not listen to Moses, not listen to Elijah. Of course, we listen to Moses. We listen to Elijah. But even more, we are to listen to God's dearly loved son. Everything that that dearly loved son has ever said should be indelibly printed on your mind. And you should constantly be reminding yourselves of the words of the Son of God. And what God loves, this is my dearly loved son, we better love. If you don't love God's dearly loved son, you do not love God. End of story. One more point. When they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone, and they saw only Yeshua with them. That's important. Our focus is to be on Yeshua. Yes, we look at Moses. Yes, we look at Elijah and the prophets, we look at the law, the prophets, the writings, of course. But our primary focus in everything is on God's dearly loved son. And frankly, this is one of the huge problems within the Messianic Jewish movement. People start off, especially Gentile Christians who get attracted to the Jewish roots of 
Christianity. They start off um, looking at Yeshua, Jesus, and then somehow they get redirected to Moses and Elijah, and Yeshua is the one who disappears. That is so wrong, so unhealthy, and a good percentage of the Messianic congregations uh, around the world have made this foolish mistake. They focus on Moses, they focus on Elijah, and Yeshua is the one who is hardly seen at all. May that never happen to us. Let's continue. Verse 9, going down the mountain. A conversation about Elijah's return. Yeshua's death, resurrection, and his return. Verse 9. As they went back down the mountain, he told them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So... They kept it to themselves, but they often asked each other what he meant by rising from the dead. Then they asked him, why do the teachers of religious law insist that Elijah must return before the Messiah comes? Yeshua responded, Elijah is indeed coming first to get everything ready, yet... Why do the scriptures say that the Son of Man must suffer greatly and be treated with utter contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they chose to abuse him just as the scriptures predicted. Yeshua's transformation was amazing. It's one of the greatest spiritual events, one of the greatest revelations that has ever happened. It would be natural for those three disciples to want to tell everyone about this great spiritual event that they had just witnessed. But Yeshua did not want that to happen. He told them not to tell anyone until he rose from the dead. Why? Why wouldn't Yeshua encourage them to tell everyone? Tell everyone what just happened. They'll know that I'm the Messiah, the Son of God. They'll believe in me. No. The reason is that Yeshua was already being overwhelmed by crowds because of his miracles, so much so that it was interfering with his ministry. He did not want this great miraculous event to become known so that people further overwhelmed him and his disciples, and he was going to be a different kind of Messiah who was going to die very soon. He did not want to reinforce the understanding that the Messiah was this glorious, powerful king. Again, Yeshua referred to himself as the Son of Man which I understand to mean the ideal human being, but also the one who's described in the book of Daniel, the son of man who appears before the ancient of days, God the Father, and is given authority to rule humanity 
in an everlasting kingdom. Now, even though he had told them shortly before this that he would be rejected by the leaders and suffer and die and rise from the dead, and even though he told them again here that he would rise from the dead, they could not understand what he meant by rising from the dead. Why? Even though he said it clearly, repeatedly. Well, their understanding of the Messiah, that he would be a glorious conquering hero, defeating the Romans and freeing us from their power and then ruling over a renewed, restored Israel, that misunderstanding prevented them from understanding the full truth about the Messiah, that it was God's plan for the Messiah to come not once, but to come twice, the first time, to do something absolutely essential, to die. It was clear to Peter, James, and John that Yeshua was the Messiah, They knew that the teachers of religious law taught that Elijah, the great prophet who never died, must return before the Messiah comes. So they asked their rabbi about this. Why did the teachers of religious law insist that Elijah must return before the Messiah comes? Yeshua acknowledged that the teachers of religious law were right. Elijah must return before Messiah comes and get everything ready for Messiah's arrival. However, Yeshua added this, Elijah had already come, and they chose to abuse him, referring to John the Baptist. Now, when Yeshua said, Elijah had already come. He did not mean that John was literally Elijah or that we believe in reincarnation, that someone comes back as someone else. Yeshua was speaking, as he often did, in a non-literal way. He meant that the ministry of John and the ministry of Elijah were similar. He was teaching his disciples a very important truth, that the Messiah would come not once, but twice, not once like everyone thought. He would come the first time to suffer and die and rise from the dead to overcome our greatest enemies, Satan and the demons, sin and the sin nature, death and hell. That's essential for us. And only the Messiah can do that. He would return to heaven from where he would come a second time as the glorious and victorious Son of Man. This was God's plan. Two comings of the Messiah, two forerunners, two great prophets who would prepare the way, get everything ready for Messiah's arrival. To us, it seems simple, clear, and so obvious, but it wasn't to them. 
Yeshua reinforced his teaching about two comings of the Messiah and two forerunners by asking them a question. Why do the scriptures say that the Son of Man must suffer greatly and be treated with utter contempt? Again, this was not something that was understood, the sufferings of the Messiah. Even though it was in the divine writings, like in Isaiah 53, the clearest prophecy about the sufferings of the Messiah and his rejection and his death and his resurrection. Psalm 22 Zechariah 12, they will look on me whom they have pierced. So Yeshua is pointing his disciples to the word of God, to the prophetic scriptures, specifically about the sufferings of the Messiah, which were not clearly understood. One more thing. Yeshua said, Elijah has already come. And they chose to abuse him just as the scriptures predicted. Well, Elijah there means John. They share the same prophetic ministry, the forerunner of the Messiah. Where do the scriptures predict that John, the forerunner of the first arrival of the Messiah, would suffer? Well, there's no direct prophecy that you could point to that the Messiah's forerunner would suffer the first time. This is what I would call an indirect prophecy. It's a prophecy by type, by shadow, a prophecy understood by similar people and similar events. Just as Elijah experienced rejection and suffering at the hands of Ahab and Jezebel during his time of ministry, So John would experience rejection and suffering by the leaders of John's day during his time of ministry. Rabbi Glenn, comments, thoughts, additions, corrections? (laughs) No corrections. Um, Yeah, in fact, I was thinking the same thing. Uh, an An example of prediction or a prophecy by type Um, In Elijah's time, Ahab, a powerful but morally weak king, and his really wicked wife Jezebel persecuted Elijah. In John's time, in Yeshua's time, Herod, a very powerful but morally weak king, and his evil, quote-unquote, wife, Herodias, persecuted John. Um, when you see things like that, you're supposed to see them. You're supposed to catch the parallels. That's, that's just like God's fingerprint on that. Yes, it's happening again. I mean, I think it was well summed up. I think, again, you know, just worth emphasizing that even after everything he has said and taught them, they're still not completely getting it. <laughs> this was such a radical... I mean, again, these are these are the people who have been with him since the beginning of his ministry and have spent the most time with him. And so if they're struggling to understand these things, it makes sense why he wants these things to be kept quiet until 
what happened here until after his death and resurrection because, again, the people probably got to understand it even less. So. And in fairness to them, it's not like people were being resurrected all over the place in, in, the his, in Old Testament history. I mean, it was an extremely rare thing, you know, like Elijah, Elisha raises the widows. So, I mean, it was just a very rare thing. So in a sense, we can't blame them too much for not really understanding about resurrection. Rabbi Jerry, please continue. Verse 14. Yeshua heals a demon-possessed boy. Verse 14. When they returned to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd surrounding them, and some teachers of religious law were arguing with them. When the crowd saw Yeshua, they were overwhelmed with awe, and they ran to greet him. What is all this arguing about? Yeshua asked. One of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, Rabbi, I brought my son so you could heal him. He is possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. And whenever the spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground that he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they could not do it. Yeshua said to them, you faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought the boy, but when the evil spirit saw Yeshua, it threw the child into a violent convulsion, and he fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening, Yeshua asked the boy's father. He replied, since he was a little boy. The spirit often throws him into the fire or into water, trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. What do you mean, if I can, Yeshua asked. Anything is possible if a person believes. The father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. When Yeshua saw that the crowd of onlookers was growing, he rebuked the evil spirit. Listen, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak, he said, I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. Then the spirit screamed and threw the boy into another violent convulsion and then left him. The boy appeared to be dead. A murmur ran through the crowd as people said, he's dead. But Yeshua took him by the hand and helped him to his feet and he stood up. Afterward, when Yeshua was alone in the house with his disciples, they asked him, why couldn't we cast out the evil spirit? Yeshua replied, this kind can be cast out only by prayer. So coming down from the mountain after the transfiguration, Messiah Yeshua goes back to the problems of life in a fallen world. And there's some interesting parallels with the transfiguration and Moses on uh, Mount Sinai. And in the same way, sort of when Moses comes back down from the mountain, uh, he sees the troubles going on in his camp. Yeshua comes down and he sees troubles going on around him. Uh, why do they run to him and with awe? He may have had some fading glory like Moses when he descended back down, which made the people rush to him. Or it may have just been they were excited to see him and see how he was going to handle this situation. What's interesting to me is there's a focus here while it's on the, the demon possession and the healing, there's an emphasis here on the disciples. Uh, we notice that after the boy is healed, we don't get to see everybody's reaction, the fathers, 
you know, hopefully uh, proud words of, you know, uh, being so happy that his faith was now being rewarded. It cuts away from that, and it cuts to the disciples, which tells us that there seems to be a focus on them here. And so it's the people who run to Moses, now the disciples. They're busy arguing with the Torah teachers. Yeshua walks into um, the situation, and again, the disciples are all unable to heal a seriously demon-possessed child. And both the Torah teachers are unable to help this child either as well. Yeshua remarks about all of them, all the people, the Torah teachers, and I believe the disciples are lacking faith, remarking that there is not long until he will be killed. That's what he means by that statement of how long must I be with you. It's, it's a part of it, it's an admonishment, but it's really about Yeshua knowing his time is short. He will die and be resurrected soon. Now, Yeshua does not address the demon. We've talked about uh, demon possession, casting out demons. Notice he does not ask for the demon's name here. He doesn't even really name the demon with a proper name. But he turns to the father to hear about the boy. Now, again, Yeshua is Yeshua. He doesn't need to know this history. He's Yeshua. He knows these things. But it's about the interaction with the father. The father desperately wants his son to be healed, but does not have enough faith that Yeshua can handle this stubborn demon. The father is challenged to place his trust in Messiah Yeshua. He cries out, begging the Lord to help him with his lack of faith. And that's a message for us today as well. The demon is then cast out and the boy appears to be dead. But Yeshua grabs him by the hand and according to the NASB and the Greek, raises him up. It's intentional resurrection language. The boy appears to be dead and he's raised up by Messiah Yeshua. And so this connects to Yeshua's death and resurrection as well earlier in this chapter. Now we cut to the disciples in private asking why they were unable to cast out this demon. We read in Mark 6 where they were given authority to cast out all sorts of demons and to heal the sick. And they had great success in doing so previously. So what's going on here? Yeshua informs them that this type of demon can only be cast out by prayer. And I believe the implication here is that they had a lack of faith. And their lack of faith was demonstrated by a lack of prayer. Okay, so we're not there for the beginning of this scene, but it's presumed that these disciples tried to cast out this demon, and they were unable to. Right? That's what we're told. So what would their next response to that situation should have been? Should it be arguing with Torah teachers or should it be doubling down in prayer, crying out to God for this poor boy, asking God to heal this boy? It seems like that's what they did not do. They got maybe frustrated and the Torah teachers are probably mocking them or some way go them into a conversation and they sit there arguing while this boy is demon-possessed and this crowd is building around them. We know that Yeshua, the Son of God, fully God, fully man, regularly prayed to God the Father. And so if God the Son, Messiah Yeshua, prays, how much more should we? Now we have this phrase in here, uh, everything is possible for him who believes. And this text gets used and abused quite a bit. Okay, what does it mean? What it means is that real faith puts no limits on the power of God. And it's connected to this father's statement of 
If you can heal him, please do so. Real faith is the leper who says, Lord, if you are willing, please heal me. There's a difference in both of their situations. That's real faith. But this father has, I think, um, you know, uh, I think it was D.L. Moody who said it's like a desperate faith. I think that's, a, that's something D.L. Moody would talk about. That he was, he was desperate and crying out to God, but his faith was not yet complete. So the disciples still not, did not have faith that they needed, and this father did not have the faith they needed. What are we supposed to learn from this? What are we supposed to learn from the father and the disciples? The story teaches us that all of us have a need for real faith and prayer, which come together. Real faith leads to real prayer, and prayer will lead to real faith. To grow in both areas, to grow in prayer, to grow in faith, requires a work of God and an acknowledgement of our need. Our prayers should be the same as this distraught father. Lord, help us. In this case, it was, Lord, help me with my unbelief. But in all areas of our life, we need the Lord's help. We need to acknowledge our complete dependence on the Lord and not assume we can do this in our own power. Or as we always like, we always hear people say, and maybe we're guilty of this as well, is to tell people to just have faith. I'm sure I heard that phrase. Just, you know, someone's going through a very tough, serious, distraught time. Just have faith. You know, going up to this father with this demon-possessed boy, he probably heard that. Have faith in God. Okay? The issue here is, isn't just to say to someone, have faith, but encourage them, turn to God. Have faith in God through prayer. Cry out to God with your need. Now, the disciples also sadly reflect many of us as well. They had been given spiritual authority to cast out demons, but it seems that something had gone awry here. Now, this may have been just a particularly stubborn demon, but I believe the emphasis on the disciples here in this passage is that they may have grown a little bit arrogant. They had just assumed, going through the motions, that, you know, this will be like every other time. I'm going to cast out this demon. I'm going to show these Torah teachers who's boss. And then when it didn't happen, they floundered. They didn't double down on God. They allowed their human nature to take over. They assumed this authority was theirs to command, and so they failed in casting out this demon because of their own lack of faith, demonstrated by the fact they did not turn to God in prayer. They weren't praying enough in this situation. And I believe we find this attitude today with many people who also claim to have spiritual gifts. This might step on some toes, but I'm going to say it. I hear, and I, Rabbi Lauren, Rabbi Glenn, I think you agree with me, we hear quite often people will command the Lord, command the Holy Spirit, declare their authority, not God's authority, their authority, or release the Holy Spirit. I'm going to loose the Holy Spirit on this situation. I'm going to release the Holy Spirit. I. Not asking God, God, pour out your Spirit. Pour out your spirit in this situation. No, I release the Holy Spirit. Okay? Let me tell you, that's the height of arrogance. Almost blasphemy, if not blasphemy. Okay? You know, I when I when I hear that phrase, I release the Holy Spirit in that way, I, I picture like a pit bull attack dog that you own, that you're releasing. Like you're opening the gate to sound the dog. The Holy Spirit is not your dog. 
okay? The Holy Spirit is not a force that you get to release as you see fit. That is, God the Holy Spirit, okay? Would you command Messiah Yeshua? Would you command God the Father? Why would you command the Holy Spirit? And is it, well, and here's what's interesting, right? Is it any wonder that most often those who do this sort of thing are as ineffectual in their spiritual authority as the disciples were in casting out this demon? There's a parallel, in my opinion, here. They show the same lack of faith with their refusal to acknowledge their own weakness and complete reliance on the Lord. If you, you know, it doesn't matter how long you've been in the Lord, I think this is a real lesson here that the disciples are teaching us is we shouldn't just rest on our laurels, rest on what we know, that we need to come before God every day to be renewed, to be completely dependent on him. And we can coast in our spiritual life. This is something we always talk about. And this is another area that we can coast if we're not aware. Rabbis, your opinion? Uh, I heard someone pray very recently. Um, I release the Holy Spirit to do such and such. And I'm thinking to myself, you sinful little mortal creature, how dare you think that you have authority over the Spirit of God to release him to do something. It's, it's blasphemous. It's arrogance. I was praying with someone else recently over the phone, and this person prayed, God, I give you permission to do such and such. And I'm thinking to myself, this little sinful mortal creature dares tell the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Almighty God, I give you permission to do such and such? Uh, I hear that this is very common in a certain part of the church, the word of faith, charismatic Pentecostal word of faith. It's terrible. Rabbi Glenn, some thoughts? And I, I have some more, but why don't you... Uh... How do you follow that? That was... Uh, I am really glad, Rabbi Jerry, that you brought that up because there is... There's a real lack of discernment and a lack of humility uh, in Messiah's community today. And um, it's, it's just awful. But the thing that struck me about this, and this, I don't know, maybe I'm just a little twisted. <laughs> there they are. Here's this crowd. Here's this poor kid just writhing, right? The, the, the demon has taken hold of him. He's writhing. Okay. And Yeshua is just talking casually to the Father. So um, how long has this been going on? You know, just talking. My inclination would be to panic. Like, we got to do something and we got to do it right now. Here's this poor kid uh, under the control of the demon. Yeshua says to the Father, so how long has this been going on? He can do that because he's Lord. 
He doesn't panic. He doesn't react. He's Lord. And, you know, if we could take a lesson from this and trust him that much more. A couple other thoughts. I find it really interesting that the father told Messiah that this demon had control of this boy since he was a very uh, a young child. I find that very interesting. Normally, my understanding of how the demonic works is that as people get older, they sin, they do things, really wicked things, you know, they got involved with a, a cult or drugs or extreme sexual perversion and that opens you up more and more to the demonic until it takes control. That's not what was happening here. This is a young child, and this evil spirit possesses this, or takes, you know, yeah, does, uh, takes control of this very young child which to me reinforces the truth that humanity really is already under the control of these fallen angels. We are under the, we're part of the dominion, the kingdom of darkness, all of us, even from a very young age. This is a more extreme example, but it's um, real nonetheless. Yeshua is the only one that can deliver humanity from the dominion of darkness. We really are in this dark kingdom, controlled by Satan, the god of this world, and his fallen angels. Only Yeshua, not science, not technology, not money, not Mohammed, not Buddha, not nothing, can free us from the dark dominion and its intentions to destroy us. Uh, Rabbi Jerry, I'm going to ask you about one one thing that you said. Uh, And that is, um, you said that Yeshua, when he was talking to the Father, he asked him, you know, how long this has been taking place. And you made the statement that, um, you know, he asked him even though he he knew it or something. That it wasn't necessary. So my point was to say it probably wasn't necessary for him to ask him. Okay, um, so the point is that Yeshua knew everything and really didn't need to ask him? My point is I think the reason why he asked him is I think, again, each of the, I, I would, on a larger scale, each of the demon possessions, it seems like, are moments of teaching, especially in Mark's gospel. And so the interaction he has with the father is to, if he had just, as Rabbi Glenn said, come in and just immediately taken control and heal that child, the child would have been healed. But the whole point of his interaction with the father, as the way I understand it, was to provoke him to see where his faith was, to test him, to see where his faith was. And so that's why he asks about, you know, he engages him in conversation. And that's when the father makes that statement. If you are, if you can, heal him. But that's not what I'm asking. Yeah. You're asking, did he, so you're asking, did, did Yeshua need to know that information, or did he know that information already? You seem to, okay, so this is, I think, uh, we've talked about this before. Yes. This is, I think, something that is, I do not believe that Yeshua was all-knowing. No, I don't, it, you mean when he emptied himself for the incarnation, 
the idea of him lowering himself. He asked this man because he wanted information. Could he have said, Heavenly Father, give me this information? He could have, but Yeshua was not all-knowing. He, he was a real human being. He did not know everything about everyone. Um, and sometimes he just asked well, people for information. Hold on. Just like, <laughs> just like he was not omnipresent, he was not all-knowing. He, he wasn't present everywhere on earth. He did not know every bit of information. He was a real human being. When he needed to know something special, God the Father through the Holy Spirit would tell him. So I just wanted to make that um, clear that he was not all-knowing. I agree that he was not all-knowing or omnipresent in his incarnation. However, it does seem like when he is in a situation, we see this over and over again, uh, I think of Simon the Pharisee, where he could just, he, he read people's minds. He knew the deepest parts of people instantaneously. He did not have to, it, it doesn't, it seems like in the situations he was in, he did have a divine level of knowledge beyond that of human understanding, and especially of the demonic realm and of demons that human beings do not possess. And so that's why I think he did, I think it was, we could split, you know, we can, we can agree to disagree on this. It's not, you know, a crux of the text, but I do believe he knew about this situation with the child and what was going on with this demon instantaneously when he came upon the scene. That's my understanding. Yeah, I, I, let me chime in. I don't think Yeshua asked questions arbitrarily. Um, every one of these encounters where he's healing somebody, doing something, he asks a question that seems either unnecessary or uh, commonplace. And in each instance, the response to him reveals something about the respondent. In this case, I'm so glad he asked the question because it provokes his conversation, which leads the man to say, I believe, help my unbelief, which for 2,000 years has been so helpful for God's people because we acknowledge that we believe, but... Yes, we also lack faith, and we need it. So uh, whether or not he knew every single thing or not, he didn't ask any of these questions just for the sake of asking, but it provoked something that resulted in a blessing to us. Thank you, Rabbi Glenn. Thank you, Rabbi Jerry. Okay.